church family, last week we began to talk about the church, and it was fitting that for our 80th anniversary service, as we look from the beginning all the way to the present, what the Lord's done in being faithful to us in our history, that we would go back to the very beginning of church history. And so we looked at uh, Pentecost, Acts 2, and we saw that following the death of Christ, 50 days later, the Spirit came forward and was poured out on the 120. People began hearing in their own languages, and the gospel was poured out, and the church began. A Spirit-filled church is one that reaches the nations. We talked about how the, really for us, and here on the nations have come to us. And so there's, there's so many different people groups that exist just right here if we would look up so many who don't know him from every stripe, and we have a mandate as a church. Turn in your Bible to Matthew 28, 16 through 20. That's where we're going to be this morning. And I mentioned this briefly, um, but I'll mention it more in depth now. We are going to be, over the next several weeks, looking at key passages that have to do with the church. Paul says about Christ and his heart for the church in Ephesians 5, he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus loves the church so much that he died for her to get her ready for that final day. You notice how Paul speaks here. He speaks not merely individualistically, but corporately, something that is so key for you and I to understand. It's not just me and I living the Christian life, and I happen to bump into Christians along the way. You ought to ask the question, what's the difference between the church and going to a concert? You go to a concert, you may sing some songs with people, but afterwards, the only time you might interact with them afterwards is if you might bump into them at the grocery store or something like that. But the church is far more deeper. It's more interconnected. It's corporate. And so we're going to look at how Jesus calls us to function in his church, the message of the church, baptism, how that's connected to church membership as a biblical concept. We're going to look at the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, the keys of the kingdom, roles in the church, particularly elders and deacons. How does the congregation fit into all of this and more? So Jesus loves his church. The church is God's plan A for spreading his kingdom in this world. The church is like an outpost of the kingdom. And so the hope of humanity is not policies, government, TED Talks, Better social media campaigns, it isn't picketing, it isn't protesting, and on and on and on. The hope for humanity is the church, if she is faithful to the mandate that her king has called her to. Last week, someone asked, I had about eight, ten people after the church service ask me the question, was it intimidating to preach in front of eight former pastors? And... And to be honest with you, normally the answer would be, yeah, duh, of course. However, 
there was a thought that came to, that was presented to me about two weeks prior that sustained me and helped get my priority right on the most important opinion. And so it was put to me in the form of a question. I, I want to put this question to you. If Jesus were to visit your church as a guest, would he want to come back the next week? Let me ask that question again. If Jesus were to visit Bethesda Church, would he want to come back the next week? At Bethesda, many of you know, we try to be intentional and welcoming to our new guest. We have a connection card. We invite you to go to the Welcome Center. We have a gift. We want to answer questions. Give a phone call uh, in the middle of the week to find how we can help and maybe get you plugged in. There's an intentionality about it. But I want you to know this. If, If you're a guest, we're glad you're here. The opinion that matters the most to us is no man's opinion but that of God's. We are to glorify him. And so I'm going to confess to you up front, we are not, I plead guilty, we are not a seeker-sensitive church. You're not going to see a mechanical bull out in the front uh, before an Easter service. You're not going to see me dressed up as Woody and Pastor Anthony as Buzz Lightyear from Toy Story because we're doing a summer uh, mo- uh, summer series at the movies and making a connection with some theme that we see in a movie. Some of you are looking at me right now going, why would you do that? And I'm using actual examples of what churches I know have done. And so I think of the quote from Spurgeon that says, why are we not seeker-sensitive? If you have to have a carnival to get people to come to church, then you will keep you'll have to keep having carnivals to keep them coming back. And so for us, while we seek to be welcoming, we ask the question, what is God's opinion of what we do? His opinion matters most. Most importantly, the reason we're not seeker sensitive is because we don't want to say, here's a gimmick to get you to come to church. Instead, we believe that we have something that is far better. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ the wonderful, grace-saturated gospel that Jesus has come to save sinners of whom we are all the worst. (laughs) And he has come to forgive us. That's more satisfying to the soul than anything else than the world could possibly give us. And so we go with what he prioritizes, what glorifies him above man's opinion. And so as we're gonna go into this, these next several weeks, we're gonna say, Lord, what does your book have to say to us? And let us pray kind of like this. Lord, let us put pragmatism aside. Lord, let us perhaps put our desire to compare ourselves to other churches. And let us ask this dangerous question, Lord. What would happen if Bethesda Church sought to be as faithful as possible to being a New Testament church? I want you to think about this. Imagine not only Jesus were to show up to our church, but imagine the Apostle Paul, whose letters have a lot to say about the church. Imagine if he were to show up to our church, afterwards would he be encouraged and go, you're doing, you're doing what the book says, good work. Or would we be getting a letter from the Apostle Paul afterwards? You have to ask that question. So my hope is that we would proceed with humility and say, Lord, you love the church more than we do. 
And so let us see what you have for us in your book so that we would be a faithful New Testament church, regardless of the cost. Let's go before the Lord and pray. Lord Jesus, it's a costly thing to say we open ourselves up to you and we ask you through your word to show us what we are majoring on that may not be right, what we should major on that we don't see. And so we ask, Lord, as we read your word this morning, that it would read us, and both individually and corporately, we would be on the right mission together. We pray these things in your name. Amen. And so the question is, where do you begin with such a monumental task to make sure that you are seeking to be a New Testament church? Well, you must begin with the Great Commission. Let me read it to you. And this has verse 18 through 20 up here. I'll start in verse 16 in my Bible. And this is what Jesus says to his disciples. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Judas is no longer a part of the picture. To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I think of Admiral Stockdale, the 1992 vice presidential election who began with the words, who am I? Why am I here? Important question to ask when you show up to church. Did someone ever think to go, what are we doing here? Very important to ask because otherwise you might just be following traditions without any rhyme or reason for how you got here. And so we have to begin with the most important thing, the mission of the church. Jesus has gathered his disciples and they've gathered on the mountain where he said, we're going to gather some worship, others doubt. Perhaps that's a nod to John 20, the end there, where Thomas doubts that Jesus is really resurrected from the dead. By the way, it's not just Thomas. There's several others who doubt. But Jesus gives them an, an instruction, and I thought it would be helpful for us to zoom in on these words. So I put them here. Uh, sound booth tech guys, if you would do me a favor and put that picture right here, and zoom in as much as you can for those in the back. And I want to walk line by line with you through this so we can see clearly, for those of us who may have heard this a thousand times, that we would hear it afresh, and for those of us who this may be the first time, we would, we would get this mandate right. So Jesus begins, he says, all authority. That first word is so key. Because this section right here, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the basis for the command. And so this is the first part here. He then says, go therefore and make disciples. That word, make disciples, Matthew 2.0, is the one command in this whole passage. And so if it's the command, it's what drives everything else. Make disciples. Hold on to that bit right there. You'll notice that the word go is here. That's actually a past participle. Work with me here. Here's what that basically translates out to. 
literally, you could say, having gone, go therefore and make disciples. There is an assumption that if you are making disciples, you have to have first gone. You have to get up. There's an action step that is required. You see that one word there, the therefore, something I do with the guys that I'm discipling, is we always have to ask the question. When you come to a therefore inscription, what is the therefore there for? It is there because what has come before. Christ has resurrected from the dead, and therefore he has the authority to speak and tell us what to do. We're to make disciples. How do we make disciples? We do them. Second participle that is here. By baptizing. This is the next part. Then the second thing that we do is teaching. Right here. And so, that is the command. We make disciples by baptizing and teaching. That's the command. Okay? The second part is that. The third part is the assurance. And that's what we'll look at. That's what we're looking at. Jesus says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What gives us assurance as we follow through with this authoritative command? Let's walk through this together. There's been a number of us who have read a pamphlet called What is the Church's Mission? Uh, by a guy named Jonathan Lehman, part of Nine Marks. I'll explain more about that later. Elders have read this. Our ministry coordinators have read this. Uh, our deacons are reading this. And, and in, the, in the pamphlet, Lehman talks about how important it is to make sure that you are lined up with the church's mission that you are part of. Otherwise, you may be part of something that you don't buy into. Actually, you may see that over time when you're a part of this church, what it prioritizes is what you will begin to prioritize. What your church, he says, counts as normal, faithful Christianity, you will soon count as normal, faithful Christianity. Spend a few years in church where the preacher and the members emphasize X topic, and you will most likely soon emphasize X. If they talk about Y, you'll talk about Y. You've heard me talk about church culture. Every church has its own culture. Um, stick around long enough, initially you may go, I, I, it's, we may use words like vibe or a feel, but over, over time you'll be able to put your finger on it and go, this is what they are about. And it drives everything that the church does to where you give your missions budget, to how you do the service on a Sunday morning, to the things we talk about, down to the phraseology that we use. Have you been in a church Maybe not Bethesda where you are in a corporate prayer meeting and you hear the phrases that they use when they pray. Go to another church and you'll notice it might be different. It goes down even to the words that we use. So your church's mission guides everything. And so this one who is authoritative, who is not only the king of the Jews, but is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, king of the universe and of our own hearts, he says to his disciples, so we make sure that we get it right in our mission. He says to go. And when you go, that's that action step. You can't just say making disciples is a good idea. You must move. Jesus describes what it's like to be a disciple. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. For what will it profit a man 
if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I refer to this passage often. It's kind of my life verse. It's the passage I preached when I candidated here in April of last year. A disciple is someone who forsakes the world, willing to suffer, and pursues after Christ. Think of the words of William Whitting Borden. He was a young man who went to the mission field, but before he even got there, he died on the way. And this is what he said about the throne that is on our own heart. He said, in every man's heart, there is a throne and a cross. If Christ is on the throne, self is on the cross. And if self even a little bit is on the throne, Jesus is on the cross still in that man's heart. Do your actions demonstrate that you are still putting Jesus on the cross or do your actions demonstrate that Christ is on the throne in your life? Where do we get these disciples? Jesus says you get them from all the nations. Sadly, I've come across uh, some Christians, even a pastor I can think of, who's said this in response when we say we have to go to all the nations. They'll say something like this. Why do we have to go all the way across the world or be a part of something that has nothing to do with us in a faraway land? Aren't there people right here in our own backyard that we need to reach? Aren't there people that we need to reach for the gospel? And I would just say to that, Jesus does not give us the option to choose whether we will be a part of saving or reaching one group or the other. Jesus has died for all people. 1.5% of the population in Japan is Christian. 1.2% in Thailand that are Christians is 1.2%. Naming off church, uh, people groups where we have missionaries that we support. 10% of the population in Egypt, Christian. 4.2% in the Middle East, Christian. I would encourage you, you received a pamphlet last week when you were here. We have them in the, at the Welcome Center afterwards. Look at the back of that 80th anniversary pamphlet and you'll see all of the missionaries that we currently support or have supported. Pray for them. Imagine what it's like where the majority of the people that you come in contact with are godless and don't know Jesus. Shifting to our own backyard, I want you to consider, just using round numbers, our own community. There's about 14.5 thousand people here in Huron. Imagine, we'll just say 14,000. Imagine we have about 30 churches or, or so. Imagine all 30 of them had 200 people showing up to church. That would be about 6,000 people are going to church right now this morning. The reality is that most churches in town don't have 200 people coming. Probably, from what I can tell, about three to five. It's not that many. So that means that there are over 8,000 people, men and women, children, those who are dealing with loneliness, those who are dealing with grief, addiction, so many that are trying to find their purpose in something that will not satisfy, those who are dealing with crises, and they don't have a church to call their own family. And the Great Commission calls us to reach them for the gospel of Christ. And so I want you to consider how this word right here, go and make disciples, that phrase right there. I want you to consider what will give you urgency, friends, if you really think about it, to go and do this. What will give you a sense of urgency is directly tied to your belief in John 14, 6, and your belief 
in the afterlife and what comes next. I want to ask you, do you really believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Do you really believe that only if you believe in him will you be in heaven with him when you die? Do you really believe that those who do not believe in Christ will be in hell, separated from him? Hell is a very unpopular doctrine. It's not something that people enjoy talking about. In fact, I think if you enjoyed talking about it, you might have a problem, right? Jesus says that in Scripture, hell is a place with unquenchable fire and undying worms. When you take his word seriously and then go into Walmart, when you take his word seriously and consider your family members who don't know Christ and consider the judgment that awaits in separation from him, or you consider, on the other hand, the grace of forgiveness that can happen, that will give you a sense of urgency that you will not have if you're a universalist that believes that all people will be saved in the end. The exclusive nature of our faith gives us a sense of urgency, or it ought to, at least. And it is a mandate for all of us. I think of how this applies to my own family. I think so many of us, we think that the way to be most, most faithful is that, is Aaron saying we all must get up and go to Japan? No, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, am I saying that you have to become a pastor to do this? No. For many of us, mom and dad, that might mean going across the hall and reaching that kiddo that is in your own home. I'm married to a, a mother, so mothers are precious to me here at Bethesda. And so I want to speak this to the parents. You're not wasting your time by cleaning, feeding, correcting, and teaching your children. They have been given to you by God so that you would be faithful to accomplish this in their life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up, applies to you. And so I want you to know that in those mundane things that seem to have no eternal purpose or reward or merit, I want you to know that they do. C.S. Lewis talks about how every person we will ever interact with is an eternal soul that will live forever. The mundane is not worthless in what you are a part of in your own family's home. Every disciple is a disciple maker. Healthy things reproduce. Healthy disciples produce healthy disciples. I'd also argue healthy churches plants healthy churches. That's a conversation for another time. If you have no desire to make disciples, I want to be upfront with you. If you have no desire to be a part of the mission God has called his church to be upon, if you don't desire the things that he desires, I would ask the question, are you actually a Christian? You can go to church, sit in the pews, now the chairs, and do that for your whole life. And if you have never given a rip about someone who is lost, I would ask the question, are you really a believer? Because believers care about the things that God cares about. I know this may seem obvious. I hope everything that I've said up until this point is obvious to us. I hope, I hope we all can say yes and amen to that. Lehman again in his pamphlet, What is the Church's Mission? The first bit uh, in there talks about four different kinds of churches who all have the same confession of faith but can demonstrate when you show up to those churches, they look far different than each other. 
He lists out four of them. First church is, he calls, seekers church. Make converts. It's all about evangelism. Everything is done with the non-believer in view. Seekers church. Second church he talks about, he says, is prosperity church. It's all about finding purpose in your life, and that usually comes through in health and wealth in the amount of faith that you're able to put in. And so if you have enough faith, then your purpose will be fulfilled. God will do that for you. It's prosperity, church. Third kind is justice, church. Justice, church cares about the downtrodden. Justice, church cares about structural injustices, the environment, doing good. Perhaps you can think of examples like this. It's the third church, justice, church. Cares about injustice. Fourth one that he gives. So we've got so far, we've got justice church, prosperity church, and also we have seekers church. The last one he says is righteous nations church. Uh, if, if the structural injustices that justice church cares about are more progressive, in this case it would be more conservative. Care about issues like abortion, same-sex marriage, LGBTQ policies, religious freedom. I can tell you, I have been in every single one of these churches who all have, if you look on their website, the same confession of faith, basically. And the truth is that each of these four churches do prioritize things that are good. You should care about the unbeliever. You should want people's purpose in their life to be fulfilled. You should care about injustice, whether that is things like racism on the one hand or on the other, whether it's things like abortion or things having to do with sexuality. Religious freedom is a good thing to care about. But I can tell you that when you care about all of these fruit issues and you miss the root issue, that you can have imbalance. You can fall, if you're a secret church, into consumerism, prosperity church into materialism, justice church into political progressivism, righteous nations church into nationalism even if they're all orthodox on paper. And so I want to say to you that at Bethesda, we seek to be none of these churches, but we seek instead to be a church that's about making disciples. And if you do that, you are not just going to care about the fruit issues. You are going to care about the deep-seated root issue that leads to those things. You are going to care about the sin issue, the rebellion that we have between us and our God. When you deal with that right there, the sin issue, you will then be able to deal with the fruit issue. You deal with the sin issue, man can be reconciled because he has believed in a God who has saved him from his sin through the cross of Christ. I want you to know that I would rather be accused of not talking or dealing about somebody's pet issue and by comparison, be able to be accused of 1 Corinthians 2.2. For I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. The point is, deal with the sin issue between us and God. And when that person is healed and reconciled with God, you can then deal with the racism that he may have, the sexual immorality that he may have. You can deal with the injustice that he may be a part of. Get the root problem right and see that Christ has died for our sin. That is the hope.
We don't just make converts, we make disciples. I know I have been a part of that church, I've seen that church, maybe you have as well, where people are so into getting people baptized, and then who knows what happens with those people after they get baptized. Man, let that not be us. Let, let that not be the end of someone's spiritual journey, but the beginning of someone's spiritual journey. You notice that first word there to go back. How do we make disciples? We baptize them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You will not find one example in the New Testament of someone who is a Christian in the church age who is not baptized. People always like to say, well, what about the thief on the cross? Kind of inconvenient for him at the time to get baptized, right? Don't use the thief on the cross as the objection here. If I could get historical for just a moment, it was the Anabaptists in the 16th century who looked at this passage. People who had been raised Catholic started reading their Bibles with Lutherans and the Reformed Church and started reading their Bible and, go, and went, we can't find one example of an infant being baptized. It looks like be belief is tied to baptism. And maybe we should ask the question, who would be most qualified to interpret this passage? We know, the original disciples. And so they read the book of Acts. When you read the book of Acts, you see in Acts 2, in Pentecost, you see in Acts 8, where the Samaritans believe. You see in Acts 10, where Cornelius and his household, the Gentiles believe. You see in Acts 19, the Ephesian disciples, who only knew about John's baptism, did not know about the Holy Spirit. In every single one of these cases, when they believed, they were baptized. That's what you see in Acts 2. Peter preaches his sermon, the Pentecost sermon. He ends it and he says, you crucified the Messiah. And it says in verse 38, they were cut to the heart and said, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And a couple verses later it says, those who received his words were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. People believe the gospel and are baptized. Believer's baptism. And so we are what you would define as a believer's church. You are not you do not enter into the covenant as an infant by infant baptism. You enter into the covenant family by way of going public with your faith, going into the waters, identifying with Christ, his death and resurrection, and you come back out and you're part of the family of God. That's what it means to be baptized. So we enter into that covenant community. You notice that there's something fascinating here though. Who are we baptized into? Well, it says the name. You notice that. Don't lose sight of that. The name, the one name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Spirit. Notice it does not say be baptized into the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is a unity, one God that we believe in. In three persons. This is one of the most clearest passages in Scripture. Don't miss it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. And so when you believe in Christ, you put on his jersey, and you enter into the game, this is the name of the team that you're on. The triune Lord. I would just want to encourage you. There are some of you here who have been coming to Bethesda for a while, 
We're going to spend a whole time, whole Sunday just talking about baptism in a few weeks. I want you to begin thinking about that. If you have never been baptized, I know that God is calling you to receive baptism. Usually the objection to baptism, usually the objection is I don't like to get up in front of people. I like Mark Dever's response to this. Getting wet is the easiest command Jesus ever gave to follow. It just gets harder from there. Isn't that good? That's the easiest one, friend. And so don't let fear lead to unrepentance. Follow Christ in obedience. Come see me and let's talk about that. It's baptism. But then you have the second way. It's through teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We make disciples by baptizing and teaching. Jesus does not give you the option to treat his words like a buffet. You have to take all of them or nothing. All right there. All of them. He wasn't joking. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How about that? Here's another one. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in in his own heart. Question, if you're really going to take all of the commands of Jesus... You're going to teach this one right here in a culture that, has, that is more desensitized to, than ever to pornography. And actually, in some odd way, I've noticed over the last several years, has become accepting, seeing it as a recreational activity instead of seeing how damning it can be to the soul. Do you trust Jesus' words? There's more. I have a list here. We don't have time. You teach the warm passages and you teach the hard passages, the full witness of Scripture. I was talking with Pastor Eldon Busnes, who was with us last week, and um, he was kind enough to uh, give me an hour of his time after the 80th and give me his counsel. And as I talked with him, something became very apparent to me. What became apparent was that this man had drilled into those of you who were here a high view of the authority of God's word that we are for truth from this book and we listen to it even if it costs us much in the culture. And I just want to say, let us continue and strive to remain in the same tradition of those who have laid that groundwork who came before us, that we take the full witness of Scripture and what God says. You see how in verse 20, that same line, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, it's to observe, friend. It is not merely... It isn't merely just knowledge intake. And so what I would want to say to those of you who are teachers, several of you have just stood up here during the nine o'clock hour. I want to encourage you, women who are leading small groups this fall, those of you who are teaching classes at nine o'clock or going to be involved in Awana, whatever, that we would not just be people who present knowledge, but there would be an aspect of our teaching that says, here's what is true, now here's what you do. There would be an action step, perhaps in the, in, the, in the middle or at the end of your teaching at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning. You say, let me tell you about the life of Jesus, and now let me tell you how you're supposed to apply that to your own life. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. We've been called to be faithful. Let me give you a few more things I'd like you to think about. While women... These are things that I see at Bethesda where we need to grow in. 
while women are taking the hill here and starting small groups, I will tell you, if we keep going on this pace, the women are going to far surpass the men. And they may already be. Congratulations, women. You're awesome. To the men, don't forget to take care of your own soul because your children need you, your wife needs you, and those around you need you. It is your responsibility to disciple those who are in your family because if you do not disciple them as the head of your household, somebody else will. There are so many options here to get involved. If you want to receive discipleship, there's no excuse. There are a ton of options. You'll see them outside. And there are plenty of options for us to get invested as well. Awana, I will tell you, needs people to step up. We have... The, those that we look at as elders and we go, who can be deacons at Bethesda? Who, who can be those who would serve in this critical area? I want you to consider that when you're tapped on the shoulder, that may be God's opportunity providing for you to step into a specific avenue of making disciples. This last one I have a little bit of trepidation with in saying, but I think I'm not going to wait until a October gathering of our church members. I want you to hear it from me here. I love Bethesda, and I want you to know I cannot do it on my own. I want you to know that I love being able to serve you, but if we are going to go deeper and not just making converts, we have to invest in a more deep way. I would ask you to consider. Consider the need for having a discipleship pastor. Consider the need for having others on staff who can invest into our ministry coordinators can help train people up. So this burden is not put on just a group of elders. Think of Palmer Home. You know how hard that man still works as he's dealing with health issues? We need other people to come alongside and say, thank you for carrying the mantle for so long. And we would raise up people here, whether it's volunteers or it's more staff members. If you want to go to the next step of deeper discipleship, I'm giving that to y'all and saying, we must do this together. It is a collective effort. It is not just Aaron. There's my action step. The harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. And so with this, I want to go to this statement. If you just bear with me for a little bit longer. Bethesda's mission statement, the elders have come up with a statement and we want to give it to you. I hope it is not revolutionary. I hope it is so obvious from what we've been talking about here this morning. We believe that the mission of Bethesda Church is to make disciples, Matthew 28, the corporate aspect. We do this together. But it's also that we live as disciples. It requires every single one of us being on board with this. Every single person is involved. And we do it not for building our own kingdom, but because we consider the words of the Westminster Catechism that says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The telos, the end for which we make and live as disciples, is to the glory of God. That's what we're here to do. And so that will impact our culture. That will impact how we talk. That will impact the things that we invest into. And that goes from what we do right here all the way down to how we teach cubbies on Wednesday night. Consider this. You may want to write this down. We'll put this at some place in the future. Making and living as disciples to the glory of God. That's why we are here.
Jesus ends with these final words, and he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It takes you back to the beginning of Matthew, where the Matthew spoke about the words of the prophet who said that there is one coming who is called Emmanuel, God with us. And now because we have the Spirit, here is the hope. And let me not put a burden around your neck that you cannot bear on your own. Here is the grace that you cannot fulfill this commandment alone. But Jesus promises through his Spirit that he will equip us whether things are good in your household or they are not good in your household this morning. To give you his presence, you will not have to do it alone and he will be with us to the end of the age. He will be with us to the end of the age. And so let us be faithful to this mission, church. Let's look at the, how what we do now and what we believe in and what we hold into and what we point and shoot at, we get this right today, how it will set us up well for the next Lord willing, 10 years. And knowing that we are doing it, not alone, but in the presence of the one who has equipped us with all that we need. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.